Bibles to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9, we'll start in verse 23. We are in a message series entitled Reflect, R-E-F-L-E-C-T. Each letter stands for a different quality or characteristic of, of discipleship, what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ. Remember what we said, that the, the church has absolutely one mission, one commission, one purpose, and that is to make disciples of the whole world. We are supposed to make disciples. We're actually disciples who make disciples. So bottom line, if our church, no matter what else we succeed in doing, if we do not succeed in making one another to be mature followers of Christ, if we don't succeed in making disciples, then as a church we fail. No matter how many people come, no matter what kind of building we have, we fail if we don't make disciples. So R-E-F-L-E-C-T is a sort of a shorthand way of talking about what a mature disciple looks like. We're all growing in Christ, growing toward maturity, and it looks like these qualities, which as it turns out, are all qualities of, of Christ. We define disciple in a very special way. A disciple simply is one who, say the word, follows Jesus to become like him. We follow Jesus and we become like him. That's important. That's especially important today. Discipleship itself is the process. It's a lifelong process. Your Christian life is not just a matter of making a one-time decision, either praying a prayer at the altar one time or shaking a preacher's hand or even being baptized sometime uh, in your life. It's a lifelong process of believers where we love and invest in one another in order to reach maturity in Christ. We're growing in Christ to be more like Christ, and for that we need each other. That's why we have and that's why we are the church. So if it's R-E-F-L-E-C-T-C, today is for Christ-likeness. Let's take a look at this. The mature believer imitates Christ in a life of, say the word, self-denial, sacrifice, servanthood, and sanctity. What's sanctity? That's a church word. What's that mean, sanctity? Yeah, set apart. Has to do with holiness, has to do with moral purity. So we imitate Christ in this life of self-denial, sacrifice, servanthood, and sanctity. The Christian life, bottom line, is just a life where day by day you and I are becoming more like Christ. It can't happen without our participation. We have to want that. We have to participate in that. But at the same time, when we simply walk and follow Christ, he makes us to become more like him. It's just sort of a, a natural part of, of walking with him. Anytime you spend time with somebody, you're naturally going to have them rubbing off on you. Around here is a staff we love each other. We spend a lot of time together. Warren Weeks is just one of my favorite guys in the whole world. He's out of town, by the way, so tell him you missed him. Warren Weeks uh, is uh, just amazing. He's a really unique guy. You know, he's, he's got just, he's Warren Weeks. There's only one of those. Uh, Warren has this little thing that he does when he's frustrated, which is about three times a day. Warren will get really frustrated. And when he gets frustrated, he'll hold his hands out like this, and he'll do his mouth like this, and he'll just, he'll just make this noise. He'll go, oh. And that's Warren frustrated. Oh. And he'll talk about whatever's going on, and he'll just go, oh. And, and you know he's frustrated. And that's Warren about three times a day. I've seen it now for years. The funny thing is, guess who's doing that now? Matt Betts. Yeah, when Matt Betts gets frustrated, Matt will go, oh. And he gets that from Warren. Matt apparently is imitating Warren in, in, in this life. No, it, it's just that. 
It's just what happens when we spend time with somebody, especially somebody that we like, that we enjoy. Naturally, we just begin to sort of take on a resemblance or take on each other's habits and and, and qualities. As a mature believer following Christ, you should be resembling Christ more and more every single day day of your life. That's not just me saying that. Scripture talks about that in several different places. Let's take a look at those. First one from the book of 1 John. 1 John uh, says this, those who, the, the one who says that they live in God must live as Jesus did. Those who say that they live in God must live as Jesus lived. That's the book of 1 John chapter 2. Let's see if I got it right. Those who say, no, now you're in 1 Peter. Stay there. No. Okay, stay there. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. 1 John chapter 2 verse 6. And then the book of Peter uh, chapter 2 verse 21. Christ is your example and you must follow in his steps. Just leave it right there. You must follow in his steps steps. So very clearly all through scripture, we know that the aim of the Christian life is to live as Jesus lived, to to, to become more and more and more like Christ. The question for you is, is that happening to you? Does that describe your life? Would those who know you well and those who know Jesus, would they say that they see Jesus in the way you live your life every day? It's not abstract, it's concrete. It has to do with the words we say, it has to do with the places we go, it has to do with the basic way we treat people, it has to do with our way of being in the world. But unfortunately for a lot of us, it it does become abstract and we don't really know what it would look like to follow Jesus or begin to look like Jesus. So bottom line, I want us to take a look today at what Jesus himself says about following him and it's in Luke chapter nine, verse 23. Lots of people who say they wonder what it would be like to follow Christ, they probably don't really want to know because when Jesus describes it, it's probably not what you expect to hear. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed, yet you lose your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What does that even mean? What does it even mean to follow Christ, to take up your cross, to deny yourself? What does it even mean? Do you really want to know? Charles Sheldon in 1897 wrote a book called In His Steps. He was looking and reflecting on this particular verse, Christ is your example and you must follow in his steps. So Charles Sheldon wrote a book called In His Steps. Very few books ever written in the history of the church that remain important throughout all of the years. But In His Steps is one of those books. It still has quite an impact on on the body of Christ. In, In Charles Sheldon's book, In His Steps, he sort of takes a fictitious church, a fictitious pastor 
who makes a challenge to his congregation, and that challenge creates an amazing revival. And the challenge was this. He just simply said that since Christ is your example and you must follow in his steps, he challenged them that every single day in every situation, in every circumstance, they should ask themselves a simple question. Remember the question? What would Jesus do? That was the basic question. What would Jesus do? In the book, the people simply began to take that seriously, and therefore they were trying to follow Jesus' example by, in, in any moment, given their situation, the choice they must make, in their shoes, what would Jesus do? It's a great book, and it's great to see how people that are self-consciously following the example of Christ literally begin to change the world it's, it's, it's amazing. The book was written in 1897. Like I said, Charles Sheldon is dead. But, but honestly, the book continues to have this incredible impact. Back in the 90s, if you'll recall, this book was kind of rediscovered by, uh, by certain uh, youth leaders. And so youth group members from all over the United States all wore very colorful braces with four letters. Remember the letters? WWJD. It's go back to the same question. What would Jesus do? So some of you grew up in Euchre back in those days. Some of you still have a WWJD bracelet. You can buy them really cheap at Lifeway now. Uh, they'll almost give them away. But back in the day, they were really trendy, really, really popular. And once more, people began to think about that question. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? In my situation, what would Jesus do? I suppose apparently the implication is that by asking that question, you're following his example and walking in his steps. Now, let me say this. I don't know of a better question to ask yourself, and I don't know of a better way to live. Constantly to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And consciously, purposefully to try to follow his example. I don't think of anything better, a more important decision you can make. But, but before you run off with this simple question, what would Jesus do? Let me ask you a, a sort of a second, maybe a, a deeper question. And that's this question, how would you know? The question is, what would Jesus do? But my question to you is, how would you know? Because I really don't accept the basic premise of some people that simply by asking the question into thin air, what would Jesus do, that the answer is just going to come to you. I don't necessarily b believe that. The problem with a lot of people asking the question, what would Jesus do, is very, very simply, they don't know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you don't know what Jesus would do. And I don't know how you could know. Jesus, it didn't so much leave us an example to follow. Jesus himself says, you follow me. It's a relationship with, with the living Christ. It's not some sort of abstract following an example of somebody you don't know. And honestly, the way a lot of people live by WWJD, they would have probably had the same results if they'd simply asked, what would Oprah do? Or what would Jimmy Fallon do? Because essentially all they're doing is asking that question and then, and then leaning upon some sort of imagination of, of what Jesus is like. And, and again, I remind you, a lot of people don't know Jesus. So they don't know what Jesus is like. So they sort of form this imaginary Jesus, the kind of Jesus that's sort of created in their own image. So what you get are people who imagine Jesus, but Jesus, as it turns out, in their minds is more or less like them, only nicer. So when people ask, what would Jesus do? What they end up doing is maybe, maybe sort of doing, being themselves only, only better or maybe more generous or, or, or nicer. 
What you've got to understand is Jesus didn't live and die just so you could be a nicer version of yourself. He didn't live and die just to make you better, a better version of you. Jesus lived and died so that you could be like he is. Our aim, our goal is to be like Jesus. And let me just say to you, Jesus is nothing like you. If you just try to be a better, nicer, sweeter version of yourself, you're still going to fall very, very short of the standard and example of Christ. So when a lot of people ask the question, I would just say, I don't think they really want to know what Jesus would do. They're just trying to reach down inside themselves and come up with something nicer than what they would ordinarily do. And I, I, I guess you could do worse than doing that. But don't imagine for a moment that if you don't know Jesus, you're just going to stumble into living like he would live. It doesn't work that way. Bottom line, a whole lot of people would never know what Jesus would do because they don't know what Jesus actually did. When he was walking on earth, when he was living as our example, most people don't even know what Jesus did then. And if you studied that, that in itself would help you understand that you're not just going to accidentally guess what Jesus would do in your situation. If you study the life of Jesus and what he did and what he said when he actually was walking among people, the one thing you'll immediately have to recognize is that he almost never said or did what people expected him to do or say. Even the people who walked with him then, they couldn't necessarily guess what he'd do and say next. Jesus' ways were not their ways. His thoughts were not their thoughts. Do you understand? And even those who walked with him physically, they could hardly ever have imagined what that man was going to say and do next. He walked into the temple, the, the house of God, and one day he cleaned the house. He overturned the tables. He drove out the animals. You understand, nobody saw that coming. Why did he do that? Jesus would heal the blind, the, the lame, the, the crippled, the people that everybody else would run and avoid, the, the lepers. But when Jesus would heal a leper, almost without fail, every single time he healed the leper in one way, he would touch them. Why would he touch? Nobody wants to touch a leper. Jesus always made a point of touching lepers. Why? You, you understand? If you just try to imagine what Jesus would do, you'll probably miss it half the time because he always defies your expectations, and he's way beyond your imagination. He's not just a nicer version of you. Jesus constantly confronted hypocrisy. He preached some very, very difficult, tough sermons, but he almost always saved those for the religious crowd. For the sinners, he always preached compassion and mercy and love and forgiveness. The religious crowd, he blistered to try to penetrate through their pride. You understand, if we just simply took that example in itself, most of us would be very uncomfortable in our own skin because we ourselves live lives of such hypocrisy. We say that we live in God, but we do not live as Jesus did. It's hypocrisy. Jesus opposed hypocrisy at every single juncture. He stood against those who hid their sin behind their religion. Lots of people never going to know what Jesus would do because they don't know what Jesus actually did. 
So what does it mean for us? How is it that we can follow his example? How can we live by his ways and become more like him when honestly he's so far beyond us? We're not going to just stop and pause and ask that question and have it dawn upon us what Jesus would do. We've got to learn to know him and somehow study his example in a way where it begins to transform us by his power transforming us. Maybe more than just looking at the individual things Jesus did, because honestly, a lot of the individual things Jesus did, I can't do. I can't walk on water. I can't do the miracles he did. So maybe more than anything else, we should just come back to what Jesus says. Come back to what he says when he was calling people to follow him. Come back to what he says, and honestly, if, if you'll notice what Jesus does is he asks people to adopt sort of higher priorities. If you really want to live as Jesus lived, you have to learn to think like Jesus thought, what Paul calls taking on the mind of Christ. You have to have his mind in you, and then you may begin to follow in his ways, but you need him for this. You need his mind. You need to understand something of his heart. So that's what... Jesus seems to say when he says, verse 23, if any of you wants to be my follower, then you must deny yourself. That's how it starts. Notice the first word there is if. If you want to be my follower, Jesus says, if you want, then deny yourself and on it. It really is if. And it really does come down to, do, do you want Jesus? I, I mean, that is the bottom line question. Do you want Jesus? Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to be more like him? This will not happen without your choice. It will not happen without your desire. And that's why Jesus right up front just says, if you want this, then this is how you get this. But you have to want him. Honestly, sometimes this as a pastor, sometimes looking in the faces of people on a Sunday morning, I, I know that, as Wayne May Hopper says, you can't look a frog in the eye and see how far he'll jump. You can't always judge by appearance. I, I know that. But sometimes, honestly, just, just look in your faces. I, I don't see a lot of desire. Not in your worship, not in the way you read the word, not in the way you listen or don't listen. It really does come down to desire. You've got to want Jesus. And honestly, some people just don't. The, the, the choice you've made is just to be a, a church person. You've just chosen to come to church on Sunday mornings. And, and, and I, I guess that's a good choice. But don't confuse that choice with actually following Jesus. You understand? So if you make a choice just to try to be good people, better and nicer versions of yourself, we all appreciate that. You, you make really good neighbors, but, but don't confuse being a good neighbor with being an actual follower of Jesus. You have to want Jesus. You have to want to follow him. You're not going to accidentally stumble onto this road. It, it's a purposeful, deliberate choice that you make. And if you don't want Jesus, you're not going to follow him. Let's be honest. So, so Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, then, here we go, step one, you must deny yourself. I guess the best way to say it is simply to say something like, get over yourself. That's what we would tell each other these days, get over yourself. You got to get past yourself. This is not going to be about you. Actually, nothing is and nothing ever has been. You're the only person alive who tries to make things about you. The rest of us are busy making it about us. You know that, right? Right? 
that you're the only one trying to make yourself the star of this show because the rest of us are under the impression that we are the stars of the show. And this is why the world is in the shape it's in. It's also why Jesus says, step one, if you're going to be my follower, you're going to have to deny yourself. That's the word that you find in Scripture, deny yourself. What's that mean? I guess deny just simply means to say no. you got to learn to say no to yourself. If you can't say no to yourself, you will never say yes to Jesus. You've got to learn to say no to yourself. I was talking to a lady one day, church lady, good lady. We were talking about her struggle with temptation. And I just simply said, I said, sister, you've just got to learn to say no. And she looked back at me with the most serious face. And she said, nobody has ever told me no. Oh. Isn't that amazing? She said that as if nobody's ever told me no, and I don't ever plan on telling me no either. Would you like to try again, preacher? Would you like to give me another word of advice? I mean, she was not listening. End of it. Nobody has ever told me no. And unfortunately, some of us are like that. I mean, you're, maybe your mom and daddy were just that, that mom and dad who never told you no. You've always got everything you've wanted. You've always gotten your way. Or maybe you've grown into that adult, that man who just absolutely insists on his own way in every situation. Or you're that woman, that diva, who just absolutely thinks that you're always going to have your way. But, but understand, you can have your way, but your way will never be Jesus' way. And until you are ready to get over yourself, until you are ready to stop insisting on your own way, you will never be able to follow Jesus in his way. But, but let me just warn you what the Bible says. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to you. Okay, there's a way that seems right to you, but the end of that leads to destruction. So bottom line, if in your life all you do is look for what you want and try to get your way, and let's say you always get it, at the end of that what you really get is hell. That's what the Bible teaches. If you always get your way and you live your life in such a way where you get what you want, what you will end up getting is destruction. You'll get hell. And this is why Jesus says, step one, you have to get over yourself. You have to deny yourself. You have to stop expecting to have your way, and you've got to let Jesus have his way with you. Amen. Get past yourself, deny yourself. Now, if that sounds harsh, if that sounds miserable, if that sounds like an awful way to live, let me just remind you that anybody who's ever truly loved anybody, you've experienced this. You've absolutely experienced this. Anytime you love somebody, eventually you love them to the point where what they desire matters more than what you desire. My favorite part about Chick-fil-A is when I say, hey, can I get a refill? And they give it to me, and I say thank you, and they say what? My pleasure. Really? I love that. I'm not all that sure that my getting a new Diet Coke is really pleasing to them. But I at least love that they wanted me to think so. It's that idea that what pleases you pleases me. It's my pleasure. If it makes you happy, it makes me happy. And honestly, anybody who loves somebody, isn't that how you live? You just begin to give up your way so they have their way because it makes you happy to see them happy. Bottom line, Christ must matter more than you matter to yourself. That's the point. Christ just matters more. I'll deny myself. I'll say no to myself because I just want to say yes to him all day long. Like, like you love to say yes to your children. Like you love to say yes to the woman you love. You just love to say yes to her. 
So I'll say no to me to say yes to Jesus because he matters more. You've lived this, haven't you? Man, in college, I fell in love with Casey Wilson. This girl, and, and this is not a joke, I'm not just trying to sound like something, this girl was so out of my league. Casey was amazing. Casey is and was beautiful. She was a lifeguard. I won't get into all this when I first, she was so beautiful. Man, she was so beautiful. And I was such a dork. I mean, I still am. You don't have to say amen or nothing, but I mean, I still am. I, I know that I am. And when we first met, she wouldn't have spit on me if I was on fire. I mean, it, 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 took a lot of, it took a lot of me putting my moves on her to convince her. You got, I had to work for this girl. I did. Man, I was just this, you know, redneck from Woodburn, just dork. And Casey was just beautiful, kind of a country club, uh, officer's daughter in the military. I mean, oh, my goodness. She was already a nurse. She's already making money. I was just, you know, spending money. I mean, then those, I, just, I needed her so, so much. I was this total slob, just this absolute slob when I married her. And she married me. That's the funniest joke ever. She married me. She loved me, loves me. When we first got married, I, I was such a slob. I was that guy who just didn't see any use at all in making a bed because I say, like some of you say, why do you make a bed if you're just going to get back in it? Yeah, there's absolutely impenetrable logic there. You know, why make a bed if you're just going to get back in it? Why, why put the cat back on the toothpaste if you're just going to take it off again tomorrow. I mean, this is kind of the way I live my life. Just total slob. When I moved out of my first apartment in college, I found, this is, this is no joke, I found in my underwear drawer a glass of grape juice. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know how. I just know, and I know it used to be grape juice, but man, it was so bad. It was so janked up when I opened that drawer. I mean, but it was in there. I don't know how, but this is how I lived. This is how I live. I mean, we almost moved out once because the smell got so bad. I mean, I didn't, I didn't want to live with me. And I married Casey. And Casey was this organized, neat, amazing woman. And the beauty thing, the beautiful thing about Casey is we got married. She never said, you've got to change. She was so patient. She never, ever demanded I change at all. She just, you know, sort of made it clear that if I wanted to live in the house with her, And I did. I wanted very much to live in the house with her. It's amazing how through the years I, I've just sort of changed. 26 years later, so hang in there, ladies. 26 years later, I make the bed every single day. I don't know what she did to me. I don't know how she hypnotized me, put a voodoo curse on me. But, but I make the bed every single day. I tidy up the house. Now, she's leaving for Haiti on Friday, and there's a part of me that could go back. There's a part of me that thinks she's going to be gone for seven days. I could live like a pig. I could live like a pig for six days, and the last day I could quickly clean up. But you know the funny thing about me now? I can't relax in the house if it's not clean. I, I, I can't really, I can't just sit down and chill if there are dishes in the sink. I don't know what's happened to me. It's just this process of loving her and being loved by her. I, I, I've just changed. And, and I love that. It, it's all good. It's all joyful. And this is what I'm saying about Christ. Walking with him changes you. But, but, but it's not like being tortured. It's like having your, your leg cut off every day. This is a relationship of delight. And love, and the further you walk with Christ, the deeper you go in His love, the more eager you are to please Him. 
I want to please him. There are things in my life to this day that I know are, are displeasing to him. I have a thought life that I know is absolutely opposed to the mind of Christ. And I struggle with that. I, I really struggle with that. But my point is, it's a healthy struggle because I want the mind of Christ. I want to think like him. I want to please him. I just love Jesus. Do you understand? So when we talk about getting past yourself, it's a joyful thing because Christ just matters more than I do. His opinion, his, 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 his plan for my life, all of this is so much better than what I would plan for myself. I want the life he wants for me. So that's why Jesus says, if, if you want to be my follower, you must deny yourself, take up your cross. It's the second thing. Take up your cross. It's probably Jesus' way of saying give it all. This is a total commitment. It's not a Sunday morning commitment. It's not just a when you're feeling particularly religious commitment. It's a total commitment. I'm always interested when I read passages like this because Jesus is talking to people while he's still alive. And nobody yet really understands that he's going to die on a cross. Now, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, we all immediately have the picture in our head of Jesus on a cross. They didn't. You understand that? They didn't really necessarily know yet that Jesus is literally talking about the way he'll die. But they still understand what it means. In Jesus' day, everybody knew what crosses were, and everybody knew what a cross was for. The cross was the Roman Empire's primary way of executing criminals, and they did this in a big way. They crucified people by the thousands. They crucified people sometimes in a single day by the hundreds. In Jesus' lifetime, in the city of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, when he was a teenager, the Roman Empire one day crucified hundreds of men and women along the streets of Nazareth. Hundreds. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, everybody knows what he's talking about. A person who took up a cross and walked away was never coming back. That's a one-way journey to your death. So Jesus is saying, if you really want to be my follower, you need to say no to yourself, deny yourself, give up your way, follow my way, which is going to be a lot like taking up a cross and making a one-way journey to your death. Not only that, notice that Jesus says, you must take up your cross. The word there is daily. This is a daily thing. A, a daily kind of giving up yourself. A daily kind of recommitment to Christ. And it's a commitment to die. It, it really is. Jesus, I love you to the point that I would die for you. Now for you and me, that is so abstract. That is so far out. But you have to be aware of the fact that, that Christians around the world live with that danger. There are hundreds, thousands of pastors just like me who, who could be arrested and taken to prison for this very message I'm preaching to you. And I'm talking about today. There are Christians in prison today for simply trying to read the same Bible that, that you take for granted. This is how Christians around the world have to respond to the gospel. When we go preach in Southeast Asia and someone converts to Christianity, they immediately become the enemy of their entire family. Our first convert in Southeast Asia was a 101-year-old woman 
who came to Jesus. She lived on top of a mountain with about 20 goats. And the moment she became a Christian, her children moved her in with them. Why? To deconvert her. Understand? When other people say yes to Jesus, they understand that this is something that could cost them their lives. For, for some of you, it's just maybe a matter of giving up a Sunday morning. And if that's the way you're thinking about this commitment, you're missing the point. This is a give it all kind of thing. Jesus says that following him is a whole lot like taking up a cross and, and, and marching off to your death. In other words, you're never coming back to the person you used to be. You're never coming back. There is no turning back. It's only pushing forward to him. And if you die with him, if you die for him, you would still prefer dying with him than living without him. This is the commitment that Jesus asks you to make. When you sometimes ask yourself, what would Jesus do? You have to remember that this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did. He left heaven for you and me. He left heaven, including all of, the, all of the dignity of being God, all of, of the glory that comes with being God. He poured that out and became human. And not just any human. He became a, a human to the point of death on a cross. He became a servant, the Scripture says. He gave up all of this. He denied himself for the sake of loving and saving you and me. He gave it all. So when you ask what would Jesus do, this is why I'm saying I'm not sure you really want to know what Jesus would do. Because he'd still do the same thing. He would give it all for the sake of saving you. If anyone wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. That language Jesus uses there of hanging on to your life, the suggestion is that you're the person who always tries to uh, save the best for yourself, that, that you want to have all the best things for yourself. It, it's back to that putting yourself first. I'm going to preserve my life. I'm going to take care of me. But Jesus offers a very, very different kind of example. Jesus says the Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for the many. In other words, Jesus' example is an example of radical servanthood. You become a servant when you follow Jesus. You're going to serve others, all others, not just your family. Anybody can serve their family. Anybody can serve their neighbors. Anybody can serve people that serve them back. But Jesus served his enemies. Jesus served everyone. You become a servant. In other words, you do not try to hang on to what belongs to you. You just give it away if somebody else needs it. There's no thought of yourself. There's just none of this trying to cling and save the best for yourself. You're just going to give it all to Jesus, and that always inevitably leads you to serving everybody else. You become a servant. That's what Jesus was. He didn't walk across the earth as a king. He didn't lord it over anybody. He just served. And if you're going to follow him, if you're going to ask what would Jesus do, the answer almost always is going to lead you to getting on your face before others and learning how to serve them. I told you, you probably really don't want to know what Jesus would do. One of my favorite guys is a guy named Shane Claiborne 
who for a time literally went to India and spent some time when Mother Teresa of Calcutta was alive. He just wanted to meet her and see her up close and learn from her. And he got to do that, which is pretty amazing. He says, everybody asks him, what was Mother Teresa like? And he just has to say, she was this tall. Mother Teresa was just tiny, little, I mean, dehydrated, wrinkled up little lady. You've seen her. He says, she was like your granny, only probably a little more ornery. She was kind of an ornery, but she's Mother Teresa, you know, so she can be. It's this little bitty, wonderful, wonderful woman of God who made herself a servant of others. She served the poor. Now, whatever else you've heard about her or, or, or not heard about her, this is an amazing, amazing Christian woman of God who lived her life like Christ. St. Claiborne said that the thing nobody talks about, but that when you actually would see her, you couldn't kind of take your eyes off of was her feet. Mother Teresa's feet were horribly deformed. Shane wondered if she had leprosy or, or something. He couldn't understand what could possibly deform an old person's feet like that. And one day, one of the other sisters at, in Calcutta saw Shane staring at her feet and said, I, I see that you're looking at, at Mother Teresa's feet. Do you want to know why her feet look like? And he said, yeah, you know, what's with her feet? She explained to Shane that, of course, Mother Teresa had taken an oath of poverty. That means that she owned nothing. She, she lived a life as a poor person, which means she was as dependent as everybody else on shoes donated to the home. And about once a year, a large box of used donated shoes would be delivered there for the children and all of the poor, including Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa was determined that nobody else should ever have to wear the worst pair of shoes in the box. So she would go to the box first, since she's in charge, she's the superior, she's mother, she would go to the box first, and she would dig through until she found the absolute worst pair of shoes in the box. And for year after year after year of her adult life, she never had a decent pair of shoes. As an old woman, her feet were mangled and deformed for the sake of loving others. You know that, right? Lots of people ask, what would Jesus do? I'm telling you, I'm not sure you really want to know. Because to ask that question with any kind of seriousness is going to lead you to know Jesus as he is. And to understand who he is and what he's like helps you to understand what you're becoming, what you should be becoming. And this is what I'm saying. I'm not sure some of you are really wanting that like you say. It would start with a radical kind of denying of yourself. You would no longer live for yourself. It would then follow with your commitment to Jesus, a, a total kind of commitment, just like his commitment to you, which would involve something like a death every day where you just take up your cross and follow him wherever he goes, whatever it may cost you. Embarrassment, poverty, wouldn't matter. You would suffer anything for his sake rather than have to live without him. For that matter, the book in 1 Peter, the, the, the passage we read earlier that says Christ is your example and you must follow in his steps. Go back and read that passage. It's about suffering. Jesus was our example in submission to suffering, so you should follow that example. And it makes you a servant of everybody. Jesus came to serve. 
He just served people. He took care of their needs first, always. Took up his own cross and died for their sake. I mean, that's ultimate in serving. The life of a disciple is following Jesus and becoming like him. For over a hundred years, Christians have tried to become like Jesus by asking that simple question, what would Jesus do? It is the right question. My concern is that you may not really want to know. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we have grown accustomed to getting our way. Nobody ever tells us that getting our way leads to destruction. It's sort of counterintuitive, Lord, that that if we try to get the best for ourselves, if we try to hang on to our lives, ultimately we lose our souls. Not sure we've ever heard it like that, Lord Jesus. It's amazing that as you called out your followers, you stood there that day, looked them in their faces and told them the truth. Lord Jesus, it's the truth that sets us free. So as we live our lives in trying, striving to become more like you, Lord Jesus, help us to follow your true example and not just the uh, imaginary Jesus that we've concocted that lets us pretty much live our own lives, do what we want, and expect that you'll bless it in the end. We have no life apart from you, Christ. We have no way apart from your way. We have nothing. But Jesus, having you, we have everything. So teach us, Lord, to deny ourselves. Teach us to take up a cross every single day, to pay the price that every single day demands that we can always be found on the path following after you. Though no one else goes with us, though no one else ever approves of us, though it never lead us to any place that the world would recognize or affirm, Lord Jesus, may we follow you and become like you. We pray, Jesus, in your holy name.